Today's scripture reading is found in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 16. I'll be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is the word of the Lord. To those of you who are downstairs, um, we're so glad that you are here, and hopefully it won't be too much longer before we are all together in this room. So uh, we are grateful that, uh, that you're here today and um, look forward to being with you again real soon. Uh, also to those who are watching online, thank you for tuning in this morning. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord and uh, ask his blessing on this time as we open his word. Father, as is the case for every preacher, his sermon first is preached to himself, and all application is seen and experienced in his life before the congregation ever hears the message. As you have inspected me this week, and as I've read this text over and over, and written this sermon and preached it to myself, you know that I need to hear this before anyone else does. So Father, I do pray that, that I would hear it again as I preach it. I pray for all of our ears, for all of our hearts, all of our minds. Father, open our eyes to see this morning what you would have us to see. Help us, Father, to be faithful to what you've called us to. Help us to understand how the gospel has worked in our lives and is working in our lives. And as we worship this morning, right now, by opening your word and reading your word, hearing your word, 
May the fruit be added to our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name and by the power of your Holy Spirit we pray. Amen. In his 1954 novel, Lord of the Flies, William Golding explored what it would look like for kids with no adult supervision to live on an island. If you've read the book or seen the movie, you know the outcome is not pretty. The idea of Lord of the Flies, it came to Golding after reading a book to his children called The Coral Island and a tale of the Pacific Ocean. In the Coral Island, three boys are portrayed as being able to work together for the common good, and because of their maturity, they were able to behave in such a way that benefited each other. It's reported one night after reading the Coral Island to his children, Golding said to his wife, wouldn't it be a good idea if I wrote a book about children on an island, children who behave in the way children really would behave? Completely going against what Golding thought was an unrealistic portrayal in the Coral Island. The Lord of the Flies is Golding's belief that without rules and without adult guidance and left to their own devices, children, to put it lightly, will not behave. One of Golding's young characters even has a startling realization when he says, maybe there is a beast, maybe it's only us. This may come as a surprise to you as you see me now with a tie and spit shine that as a kid, I was a handful, right? As they say, I was full of life, Um, so full of life that my mom would bark a command at me. She would would grab me by the cheeks and look me square in the eyes, and for the first 10 years or so of my life, after she would say, Jay, I thought the command was a two-word command, she would grab me and say, Jay, behave. What goes around comes around because as the father of four children, I've instructed our kids to behave over and over. Yeah, (laughs) it happens. It happens. Wanting our children to behave is, is part of parenting. But misbehaving is obviously something adults are capable of too. You only need to turn on the nightly news and see what's happened in the Waffle House parking lot, right, leading up to someone's arrest. Sometimes it's clear what is acceptable behavior. And at other times, the lines, they get blurred. What happens when standards of behavior clash? Who gets to define what is good and bad behavior? If only, as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, he had something to say about this matter. Well, fortunately... He does. And if you are not already there with me, I want to invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. We are still in our D301 series, Discipleship 301. This is the third week. We're going to be concentrating this morning on verses 6 to 16 of chapter 4. But before we do that, I want you to either flip back one page or look across the page, depending on how your Bible's laid out. At 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, Paul says, I hope to come to you, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, 
which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. What was Paul's purpose in writing this letter that we know as 1 Timothy? Look at it there again in verse 15. Paul says, I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. We can imagine that someone in Timothy's position, someone like Timothy, might have thought, well, I'm a big-time pastor in, in the important city of Ephesus. So who does Paul think he is writing to me, telling me how to behave? By knowing Timothy and what we know of him in Scripture, we, we understand that that's not how he received this, right? So he understood that Paul was not merely speaking from his own wisdom and wit. The first five years of ministry, uh, I had the privilege of serving families and children uh, at a church south of Atlanta. And uh, often I would have parents come to me asking for my recommendation of uh, discipleship materials, parenting materials for their kids. Uh, So I, I vetted a lot of resources, a lot of books, a lot of videos. You may already know this, but just in case you don't, there are a lot of terrible, terrible resources in bookstore, bookstores and online that pass for Christian parenting advice. What I discovered was that much of what is available to parents to help them navigate the, the rigors of raising children was based on the author's own insights and not necessarily ones that were shaped by the gospel. Paul is not doing that. His counsel to Timothy on gospel-shaped behavior is based not on his own wisdom and wit, but on the life and ministry of Jesus. We referenced 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15 minutes ago, I hope to come to you, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. But notice what comes right after that when Paul says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Paul is saying the key to behavior that is befitting of the church is not a what, but a who. The behavior of Christians is not shaped by the wisdom and wit of man, by the person and work of Christ. Paul wanted Timothy to know that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, and that by fixing our eyes on him, our behavior would be shaped by the gospel. So Paul tells Timothy, he he was writing to him so that he might know how one ought to behave, and then he goes on in the text that we're focusing on this morning to reveal exactly how he could do that. In verses 6 to 16 of 1 Timothy 4, we're going to see three principles of gospel-shaped behavior. And each one is set off by the phrase, these things. These things. So what are these things? Well, it's everything up until this point, for sure. right? And knowing that Timothy was going to be reading the entirety of the letter, it's, it's everything that follows. So all of this exhortation to Timothy are these things. But specifically, in focus here are things that will help him understand how he 
and by extension, those in the congregation should behave in the church. And not only in the church, but going out from the church. So the first principle is found in verses 6 to 10. Here it is. Gospel-shaped behavior serves others. Gospel-shaped behavior serves others. Look at verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Now, it comes as no surprise to us that gospel-shaped behavior serves others. The very essence of Christian love is looking for opportunities to serve, and we usually equate this service with meeting physical needs. Jesus tells us in Matthew 25, 35 to 40, that those who will inherit the kingdom of God are those that attended to the physical needs of the least of these. And Paul will certainly make the connection here in this letter by providing a template for Timothy with a, a plan to care for the needy in that church. But gospel-shaped behavior does not just serve the physical needs of others. Paul is, is reinforcing young Timothy's vision for gospel-shaped behavior as a pastor of this church in Ephesus. So how can Timothy best serve those that he's shepherding? By preparing himself to preach the word of God to them. The most vital work of a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ is his preparation to serve you, the people of God, the Word of God. It's not lost on Jeff or Nick or myself that we could not do what we do if you did not do what you do. If we didn't have the cooperation of the elders and the deacons and all of the volunteers here at Trinity, we would spend all of our time in administration and in meeting physical needs, and we would have no time to prepare for preaching. I want you to see uh, in, earlier in, in the Bible, just so you know, Paul wasn't making this up uh, in and of himself. Turn back to Acts chapter 6 with me. Acts chapter 6. This pattern that Paul is laying down for Timothy began in the earliest days of the church. So Acts chapter 6. Beginning in verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a, compl a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve, the, the twelve apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. So we're told that they, they chose seven men, and then in verse 6, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. While Jeff, Nick, and I are not apostles, we don't pretend to be, we don't claim to be, we have not deceived ourselves into thinking that we're apostles. 
Scripture is clear that God has given the church shepherds and teachers. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So Timothy would be a good servant to his church by putting the Word of God before them. But notice the the beautiful reciprocity that takes place when that happens. We serve you, the Word of God, preparing for preaching and teaching, and you receive that and serve others out of that instruction and exhortation that comes from God's Word. Not only are you serving physical needs of others, some of you are also serving by facilitating and teaching Bible studies and groups. All of this is happening because of the centrality of the gospel and the Word of God, right? Your desire to meet physical needs or to do a Bible study didn't just pop up out of thin air. Where did it come from? It came from you being shaped by the Word of God, being shaped by the gospel. So as Paul says, Timothy would be a good servant to put these things before the people in Ephesus, One of the reasons Paul insists Timothy serve others by putting these things before them is that there will always be challenges to sound teaching. Look at verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. So we shouldn't be surprised when this happens in our day, but it seems like it's a weekly occurrence that another preacher or teacher that I once held in high esteem has abandoned the gospel for some silly myth, as Paul calls it there in verse 7. No one is exempt from this temptation of leaving the gospel or attempting to add to the gospel. That's why Paul warns Timothy and instructs him to train himself for godliness. Paul compares and contrasts bodily training with training for godliness. So Timothy could have spent all of his time in in the gym, right, getting ripped and, and looking really fly, looking really fit. And that's not a bad thing. As a matter of fact, Paul says training the body is of some value. But look at how he contrasts training the body with training for godliness. Training for godliness holds promise for this life as well as for the life to come, right? You can't take the muscles with you when you go. Verse 9 is Paul's way of saying you can take that to the bank. I love it. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Timothy's gospel-shaped behavior will serve the people that he shepherds because he is training for godliness. It is so important that we see training for godliness is not the opposite of bodily training. Paul is not pitting the two against each other. It's the opposite of entertaining beliefs that are not shaped by the gospel. So when we are exposed to teaching that is divergent from the apostolic witness, which is the teaching of Christ, When we are exposed to those things, we as folks who are being shaped by the gospel, like our beliefs are being shaped by the gospel, our behavior is being shaped by the gospel, we should be able to detect error and run from it, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. 
So part of our job as pastors here at the church and part of the job of the elders is to help you become strong in your truth-detecting senses, right? So that when popular people that we see on TV or we might see their, their videos on YouTube, when we hear them and they say something that does not accord with Scripture, we can turn them off and run from them. That's part of our job here, weekly, in, in bringing before you the Word of God. The hope is that you will be trained in godliness. We read Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 saying, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And this sounds a lot like what we see him saying here in verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, or the helper of all people, especially of those who believe. Gospel-shaped behavior doesn't always come easy. There is toiling and striving as, as we imitate faithful servants of Christ who have gone before us. One of the reasons that we want our behavior to be shaped by the gospel is that we have our hope set on the living God. The world is full of cheap imitations of hope. You and I are even often tempted to place our hope in lesser things. But Paul is assuring Timothy that behavior shaped by the gospel will serve others, not only, not only by meeting their physical needs, but by reminding them to set their hope on the living God. The second principle that we see is found in verses 11 to 14, and it's this, gospel-shaped behavior sets an example. Gospel-shaped behavior sets an example. Look at verse 11 with me. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. We, we know that Timothy was a young man. We hear this all the time. He was probably in his 30s. While he wasn't a teenager, it was unusual for a man of Timothy's age to find himself in the position that Timothy was in. This is why Paul was, was firm with Timothy, that he assert himself as a leader in the church in Ephesus. Timothy, as a, a young man, would have to command, literally insist on, and teach these things that Paul had passed on to him in this letter. Paul was commanding Timothy to set an example for those under his care through his gospel-shaped behavior. So when you hear words like command and teach, you, you might think of a leader that is heavy-handed and harsh. But that's not at all what Paul had in mind. Paul, at the same time, was insisting Timothy assert himself, but that he do it in, in a way by setting an example in his speech, in his conduct, in his love toward those around him, in his faith, and in his purity. Gospel-shaped behavior would be what would power Timothy in his setting an example. And this goes to show just how much Paul trusted in the strength of the gospel of Jesus to accomplish an un otherwise unthinkable task. 
All right, Timothy, I, I want you to establish yourself in Ephesus, and here's how you're going to do it. You can imagine young timid Timothy who's probably thinking, oh no, here we go. He's going to ask me to, to do something outside of my comfort zone. But look at the expectation. First, in his speech, Timothy was to set an example, watching what he said and how he said it. The tongue is a powerful thing. James says in his letter that the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. He talks about the difficulty with taming the tongue and even goes on to say the tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. The gospel was to shape Timothy's speech But this wasn't for the pastor alone. Remember, he was setting an example. He was modeling behavior so the church could imitate him. So as James said, we should be mindful of how we talk toward those in the church. But remember what Paul said about how we should talk to those outside the church. In speaking to the the church at Colossae, he, he says that their speech with those outside the church should always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So, Timothy, watch your speech. And Timothy set the example so that others there in the church will know that as followers of Christ who are being shaped by the gospel, they should watch their speech as well. Our conduct is also to be shaped by the gospel. Whether in private or public, what we do matters. Some of you have no doubt heard about a a very famous evangelist and apologist um, who, after a thorough investigation, it has recently come out that um, he was leading a double life, right? Uh, This man, his impact was global. Uh, No doubt he impacted many of you. He certainly impacted me and his teaching. But something like this comes along where, where you realize that someone is conducting themselves one way on the platform and on the, on the speaking circuit, but quite a different way behind closed doors, and the, the outcome is devastating. Right? If, if you only need look at message boards and social media to see how many people are just completely devastated by what has surfaced of this man's life. All the good that he has done is now on the table for inspection, and it only works against the name of Christ. So may our conduct be befitting of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Not only what we do and how we act in public, but what we do and how we act behind closed doors. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. As with speech and conduct, Timothy was to set a high bar in loving others, in evidencing his faith, and in in living a life marked by purity. Paul could say, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The gospel shapes our behavior because we are looking to the foundation of the good news and following his example. So we're, we're looking at the Lord Jesus, right? Anyone can behave for a day. Anyone. 
but God, maybe not me as a, as a little kid, but most people can behave for a day. But gospel-shaped behavior allows us to follow the example of Christ and to model that example for those that we are discipling. We saw last week how the gospel shapes our worship. Here again, Paul mentions worship when, when reading Timothy that, or reminding Timothy that gospel-shaped behavior will have him reading Scripture to the congregation. Look at verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Gathering around the Word of God together with your church is the most important thing a Christian can do in their week. The most important thing. Paul knew this would not be an easy task, so that's why he told Timothy to devote himself to regularly focusing on the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and teaching. We know in our day that this is not an easy task, and it takes devotion. We're reminded of churches that are being made an example, like Grace Community Church in California and Grace Life Church in Alberta, Canada. In our country and around the globe, more and more, gathering weekly together as the people of God is becoming an increasingly difficult thing to do. Pastors must devote themselves to the public reading, exhortation, and teaching of Scripture. We've seen how Timothy's behavior was shaped by the gospel, but Paul is also referencing the gospel-shaped behavior of the congregation here as well, right? He has to have somebody to regularly read the Scriptures too. Just as Timothy had to be devoted to public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching, the congregation had to be devoted to gathering to hear the reading, exhortation, and teaching. Jeff mentioned last week that we should be longing for a return to, in, to full in-person worship and fellowship. And again, let me say downstairs, we are so thankful that y'all are here this morning. Thank you so much for coming and sitting downstairs. The reason that we say this is not, not because we think it would be a good motivational and psychological bump to have all of the chairs back in here and every one of them filled. The reason that we say this is because behavior that has been shaped by the gospel leads us to gather together as the church. So it is our hope that this room will be once again filled to capacity in the not-too-distant future. And, and listen, I understand that there are those who can't be here for medical reasons and health concerns. We understand that. But for all who can be here, we want you to be here on a regular basis. We need you to be here on a regular basis. One more point. We see it in verse 15 and 16. Gospel-shaped behavior shows progress and persistence. Gospel-shaped behavior shows progress and persistence. Look at verses 15 and 16. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. So Timothy has been instructed to put these things before the church. He's been instructed to command and teach these things. 
Lastly, he's been instructed to practice these things. Just as he was to set an example, Paul is commanding Timothy to not only practice these things, but to immerse himself in them. This gospel-shaped teaching is intended to take over Timothy's life. Why? So that others may see his progress. We're all familiar with the phrase, practice makes perfect, or some people will say, perfect practice makes perfect. But that's not what Paul is expecting. He's not asking for, demanding, or calling for per- perfection from Timothy. What is Paul coaching Timothy toward here? Progress. I think one reason failing at spiritual disciplines is so high in the church is because we expect perfection out of ourselves. With good intentions, we we set a a goal and quickly find out that goal is unattainable. And whatever spiritual discipline it is that we've set our minds and hearts to, we'll, we'll miss a couple of times, we get discouraged, and then we quit. But look at the care with which Paul instructs Timothy. As any good discipler, He's encouraging his disciple to practice godliness by immersing himself in it so that his progress will be noticeable to those around him. Discouragement, it comes so easily in the Christian life. But hear the Apostle Paul when he says to Timothy, progress, not perfection. One of the most helpful things for me when when thinking about progress in the Christian life is to to picture the Dow Jones Industrial Average. So uh, most of y'all are familiar with it, but just in case you're not, it's on the news or in the newspaper. It's that little green line that that runs up. It's a measurement of how our economy is doing. If you zoom in on a day or a week, what you see are a bunch of erratic ups and downs. There's some pretty abrupt highs and lows. But what happens if you, if you back up and you click the five-year view, right? What do you see? You see this steady progress, right? Up and to the right. Get perspective, get a different point of view, and no longer do you focus on the erratic ups and downs, but you see a steady movement upward. So what happens if you zoom back in on, say, September 29th, 2008, or March 23rd, 2020? You see an incredibly sharp drop-off, right? And it can be frightening. Think about the Dow Jones Industrial Average and, and that squiggly green line in terms of your spiritual life. As with everything else in the Christian life, some days are better than others, Some times of some days are better than other times of those days. Just like with the Dow Jones average, if all you're focusing on are the drops in a day or a week, you're going to get discouraged. You have to back out and, and get some perspective and look at how the Lord has been at work in your life over a long period of time. To borrow a phrase, the Christian life is a long line of, or long obedience in the same direction a long obedience in the same direction. There will be ups and downs. Our sanctification will look a lot like the Dow Jones Industrial Average. 
But when you're tempted to despair, remember Paul was asking for progress, not perfection. This certainly doesn't excuse sin and intentional intentional disobedience because Paul comes right back in verse 16 to say, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. He says, persist in this. In other words, be unrelenting in your determination to guard your heart and your mind. Why? Because as we've already said, what you believe will eventually work itself out in how you behave. Paul is saying there's a strong connection between what you believe and how you behave. The one who persists in sound doctrine will persist in their devotion. There's a lot riding on Paul's expectations for Timothy. He says, by persisting in, your, in watching your speech, your conduct, your love, your faith, and your purity, you will save yourself and your hearers. And before you get all riled up, we don't need to call the heresy police on Paul because he's not saying we can do what only the Father through the Son and by the Spirit can do. He's saying that those who persist in their doctrine and devotion will be shown to have persevered in their salvation. So I mentioned early on that I was a handful as a kid. It would not have been an understatement to say that I was not well-behaved. I could tear up pretty much anything and everything around me. There was a standard, an expectation set by my parents that I often failed to meet. What would have been easy for me to conclude as a child was that my parents were expecting me to behave out of a desire for me to comply with their demands. But knowing that my parents loved me and and knowing What was driving now, what was driving their desire for me to behave, I understand they were attempting to set me up to flourish. As Christians, we've been exposed to the gospel, and that encounter shapes everything about us, even our behavior. Paul makes clear there is an expectation of how someone who has been exposed to the gospel will behave, right? Paul will say there is a right way to live. We could take this as Paul's attempt at forcing Timothy and the church into compliance, or we could see that Paul is setting Timothy and those he pastors up for flourishing. This exhortation to progress and persist in the Christian life should remind us that the gospel shapes our behavior for the purpose of salvation. I don't want to disparage William Golding's taste in literature at all, but even though I've never read the, the Coral Island, I like it better than Lord of the Flies, simply because it sounds like a portrayal of behavior that has been shaped by the gospel. Perhaps as in the Coral Island, gospel-shaped behavior allows us to work together for the common good. And because of Christian maturity, we're able to behave in such a way that benefits each other. This all is is built on the understanding and having gospel-shaped behavior that you have been shaped by the gospel to begin with. I mentioned to the the first service, right? We're not trying to, to nail apples to a dead tree. We're not trying to encourage you toward behavior that is just not coming from the right source. Again, anybody can behave for a day. 
the hope is that you've been shaped by the gospel. And as such, your behavior will be shaped by the gospel. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. As we look to Christ, may our behavior be shaped by the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this exhortation from Paul to Timothy by way of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the words of Christ. We understand that these words are not meant to force us into compliance, but instead to set us up for flourishing. And so, Father, may we heed everything that we've seen this morning in your word. We thank you for the example set by Christ Jesus. We thank you for the obedience of the faithful that that came after him. Thank you for entrusting the precious message of the gospel with the apostles who imparted that beautiful message to disciples who have made disciples, who have made disciples, who have made disciples, leading all the way up to now. Father, may we be challenged from your word to want to know more about disciple making, to want to make disciples, to to want to be discipled, Father, I pray that this series would be fruitful and instructive for us all so that if the Lord should tarry a thousand years from now, the church is alive and well, producing fruit because we invested here today and made disciples who will make disciples who will make disciples. Father, thank you so much for this time together. Prepare our hearts for the table. It's in Jesus' name we pray and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.